Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn back to the book of Proverbs chapter 11. And uh, as you uh, are well aware of, we have been coming through the book of Proverbs and we've been looking at uh, almost verse by verse, sometimes, many times, word by word, and just really getting the principles laid out that, uh, that are laid out in there. And uh, we have been in probably, I think, one of the greatest sections uh, in the book of Proverbs of really uh, showing and us, helping us understand how to get uh, the successful Christian life. And I, I've told you many times that, you know, a successful Christian is just somebody who simply finds out what God wants them to do with their life and then fulfills that for the rest of their life. And um, I don't know of any greater place in the Bible that it lays it out in such detail as we've been coming through than Proverbs chapter 11, verses 23 through 31. We certainly, you know, have been coming down verse by verse. And we have seen, you know, so far uh, four great principles that we've gleaned out of here uh, for our lives. And uh, they really give us the balance when you try to have that successful Christian life. There are things that, even though I give them to you in a one-line sentence, there are things that you can actually take and, and build on, um, you know, for the rest of your life. The first one was found in verse 23, and we talked about that the first week, the desire. The desire of the righteous is only good. And we talked about, you know, our desires in life and how to really, that's one of the keys to, to getting God and understanding God is your desire. And you'll see another aspect of that today as we get into the verse today. We looked at verse 24, and we learned about scattering and putting out the Word of God. And in that great passage, it talks about that when you scatter and put it out, it talks about yet you get an increase from it. And we talked about how all that works. Uh, verse 25, uh, last week, we talked about the liberal soul and, and the fatness of our soul. And we defined all of that from the Bible. And you learned last week how that, you know, the Bible has one set of definitions and the world many times has another set of definitions. So we put all that together. And then we also saw in verse 26 last week of the selling of the corn, uh, not withholding what God gives you and how that it comes back to you uh, on your head. And we talked about the aspect of, of our head. The head of every man is Christ and took it on right down the line and showed you how that, that all works. And as I've already said, you know, uh, these verses are some of the best material in all the Bible that helps us really to be everything that God wants us to be. And today, uh, we're going to again look at the next set of verses and we'll see how they'll apply to us. And today we'll be in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 27. And we won't get any farther in this verse today, but I think that you'll see when we're done that there's a lot in this verse. It says in verse 27, He that diligently seeketh good procureth favor, but he that seeketh mischief, it shall come unto him. Let's pray. Father, thank you today and help us with all that we endeavor to do for thee. And Lord, these are good people today who have come out to hear your word. And I pray that uh, they'll, they'll get a blessing from it, Lord, that you'll open up the scriptures Father, we'll look deep inside all of us today, including myself, and ask your forgiveness for anything that we've done this week or today or last yesterday that, that is not pleasing to you, and we'll put it under the blood that we might be able to receive all that you have for us. We do love you. We thank you now and praise you for our time together in your word, and we'll ask it all in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, this verse is very simple as you read it. He that diligently seeketh good procureth favor, but he that seeketh mischief it shall come unto him. It seems like at first glance it's self-explanatory. And uh, it seems like something that all of us in the Bible when we read it, we just read that, take it for face value, and then move on. 
But I want to tell you, incredibly, this verse is, might be simple, yet it's incredibly deep and profound uh, in its application. And when you begin to take it apart and look at it and examine it as we have the other verses, uh, you begin to see. Now, on the surface, the verse simply says this, good or bad, you'll get what you pursue in life. That's what the verse is basically saying. And if you just want a simple application to it, that's what it is. You know, and in almost every endeavor in life, you see this principle or this verse at work. Uh, You know, in school, you're going to have some students who excel better than others. I mean, you just do. Uh, Some are better at math. Uh, Some people are terrible at math. Some people are really good at science. Some people are terrible at science. Everybody kind of finds uh, their way, and some people just excel and are better at it than others. When I went to school, high school and grade school, man, I mean, uh, it was it was always a tough thing for me. My, my I dreaded the parent-teacher conferences. You know, uh, my prayer life took a sharp peak right before report cards came out. You know, it was a thing where I was never very good in school, uh, and a lot of it, most of it, was my own fault. You know, I was a daydreamer. You know, the teacher would say that while she's talking, she'd tell my mom that I'm looking out the window, you know, and, and, and just looking around the room and not paying attention. And a lot of it was my, my fault. But there were students who were a lot better than I was. They excelled more than I did. There were some things that I was good at. But, but uh, you know, there, I was not a straight-A student by any stretch of the imagination. D's were happy for me, man, I'll tell you. When I got D's, I'll tell you, it was like heaven came down and glory filled my soul. But, you know, but you see it in sports, too. You know, you have a basketball team, you know, you have a starting five. And those guys will play, and the other guys will get to play every once in a while. But, you know, there's some guys that never get to play. They're on the team all, all the time, and they never get to play. Uh, I'm not sure why that is. Ability. Uh, Maybe some guys try harder than others, work out a little better. I'm sure that happens. You see it in football when they they have a starting team. Even in baseball, you know, you have a team that the guys are out there playing and, you know, everybody else kind of warms the bench or kind of sits over there. But it's true in in everything, even in your job. Wherever you work, you know you're going to find people who excel greater than others. Some try harder, some get more done, some get promoted faster than you. And I know many times it's a political thing. I get that. But it's basically fundamentally true. Some people will excel farther than others simply because they put out more than others. It's that inner desire a person has, or in some cases doesn't have, to be all that you can be uh, when they pursue something in life. Now, I know in a physical world, as we live, go to work, all the things I talked about, men and women are not created equal. Some of us have better talents than others. Some of us are more better at this than others. So the idea that, you know, all men are created equal is, is really not a true statement. Now, I must say that Colonel Colton Smith and Wesson kind of even that out a little bit, but, but not a whole lot. And uh, there are some people who just have better natural skills and talents than some other people in whatever, academics, football, sports, uh, in all areas of life. And yet, even in that, you're going to see some very small cases where desire overrides talent. My favorite movie is Rudy. And if you've never seen the movie Rudy, you've got to rent it and you've got to watch it. It's a true story. Rudy Rudiker was a guy who graduated from Notre Dame in, I believe it was 1976. 
He's the only player in the history of Notre Dame that got carried off the field by his team. Rudy Rudiker was a walk-on. He had this desire to play football for Notre Dame. He was five foot nothing. He was a hundred and pound nothing. He had a speck of football ability. But he wanted to play for Notre Dame so bad, it was unbelievable. And he walked on, he, he had to, his grades were not good enough to get in, so he went to Holy Cross, you know, first, uh, and, and got his grades up, and then he transferred over, and when he got it, and he went out for football, he never, 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 in four years of his time, he never got to play uh, on the gridiron with all the great guys. He was on the second team, and they beat him senseless, but he never quit. He hung in there, and hung in there, and hung in there for four years. The last game of his senior year, the coach put him in for the last 20 seconds of the game. And at, not because the coach wanted to put him in, but because everybody in the Notre Dame knew who Rudy was. And you could hear in the stadium 10,000 people crying, Rudy, Rudy, everybody was doing it. <coughs> and out of his great dismay, the coach put him in the game, and he got to play. It's one of the greatest success stories of a man's desire. It's a great motivational movie. It's something that, that when I see it, I mean, it, it, it just uplifts you to give you that desire that, that no matter where your inabilities are, if you have the desire, you can overcome just about everything in life. Now, I said all that to make a point, and here's the point I want to make. Now, there is no difference of ability or skill when it comes to your pursuing the Bible and the things of God. I want you to understand that. Where you may not be created equal in life, the moment you trust Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, everybody is on the same playing field. You know, if there's ever anything in my life that has captivated me, and I mean this, if anything that has fascinated me over the years, and I've been in the ministry over 40 years, it's been watching people. It's really been a lifelong study for me. It wasn't something that I just decided to do one day. It just kind of came into my life as I got into the ministry and I learned some things about the Bible. I saw my own deficiencies and what I needed to work on. And then I, I, when I started working with people, it became, a, it became a, a captivating thing to me. Why some of God's people make it our successful Christianity and some don't. Because unlike the world of sports or academics or anything in life, in Christianity... When you got saved, every man and every woman has the same Holy Spirit of God. Nobody got here less of the Holy Spirit than the person sitting next to you. Everybody got the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible says that when you got saved, God gave every man a measure of grace. It also says he gave that man a measure of faith or woman. Nobody got shortchanged on that. Everybody starts out on an even playing field and has the same Holy Spirit, has the same measure of grace, has the same measure of faith, and skills or abilities or education or intelligence has absolutely nothing to do with it. Hey, I've heard all the excuses. I've heard people tell me over the years, well, I have a learning disability, you know. I, I didn't ever finish school. 
I've had people tell me, well, I, you know, uh, every excuse in the world for not getting into the Bible or not being successful. Well, I, I don't have good study habits. You know, I hate to read. Well, I'm not just smart as other people. Well, I've never been inside a church all my life, so I'm really at a disadvantage. And I absolutely, I hear this one all the time, I absolutely know nothing about the Bible. You know that's exactly the qualities that you need to learn the Bible? Many times the very fears and the very excuses we have that we put forth why we can't do it is exactly the things that God wants us to have in our lives that we can do it. And it's incredible. You know, William Tyndale, William Tyndale, he, he many, many years ago, at 14, he lived 1494 to about 1536, somewhere in there, and he, he developed the second English translation. And English had come into its own, you know, and Wycliffe had done the first one in the 1300s. And, and, and Tyndale t- creates the, 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 uh, the forerunner of your modern-day King James Bible. It's off the same text. In fact, when the King James translator sat down and translated your King James Bible that you have in your hand, 95% of it was off of Tyndale's Bible. And he put the, first Eng- uh, the second English Bible into, uh, into English for the common man. He got tremendous amount of flack for it. The, the, the educators and the scholars at Cambridge and all of those places in Oxford in England, they were beside themselves because here was a, a man who was a legitimate, quote-unquote, scholar who wanted to take the Bible, who all the scholars wanted to keep to themselves, and open it up in a common language that would give every common man equal footing when it came to the Bible. You know why? Because he understood that it wasn't about your intellect that got you anything with God. It wasn't about how much education you had. It was about the attitude of heart and a desire that you had to want to get something from God. And he was looking out, he was in a conference, and they were giving him all kinds of flack. And he's looking out the window at a, a, a boy that was behind a plow with a horse, plowing a field. And he said, Sarahs, someday that plow boy will know the Bible better than all the scholars of England. And boy, it was true. So... There may be different advantages or disadvantages in the world that we all have, but I want to tell you something. When it comes to you learning the Word of God and having a relationship with God, your intellect has nothing to do with it. Your education has nothing to do with it. It comes down to your desire and your ability. Let me clarify this. Don't get me wrong. If I want a lawyer and I need a lawyer, I want the smartest guy in the law school. I want a guy whose IQ in law is way above the garbage guy. If I need a doctor, I have to have a brain surgery, which I'm contemplating. You have to have some kind of, I want the best doctor I can find. I want the guy that academically was the head of his class. I want somebody who knows everything about anything better than anybody. When I go to the airport and get on a plane, I want the pilot to be the best in the flight school. I don't want, like I flew to El Salvador one time, and the, we're all on the plane, and pilot comes on, he's got a big old pipe, he's got one eye, he's got a patch over his eye. That's not what I'm looking for. <laughs> so I want to make it clear, in the world, I 
want the best when it comes to that. But when it comes to God and the Bible, it's the great hairball that sticks in the throat of higher education in religion and theology. The very fact that you, as a common individual, could have a relationship with God on par with anybody on this planet. We sell ourselves short because we think that our disabilities or somebody is smarter or better or this. When it comes to salvation, you got everything that everybody else got. It's your desire. Now, one of the greatest examples of this in the Bible is Moses. And we think of Moses as a great leader, and he was. Moses was one of the greatest leaders that Israel ever had. But do you know that when Moses first started out, he was a failure with just about everything in life? He had all kinds of complexes. I mean, when he's down in Egypt down there and he, he's kind of torn between, he knows he's a Jew, a Hebrew, and he knows that he's in Egypt and he's kind of caught between the two. He can't really make a stand yet at one point or the other. And he sees an Egyptian guy mistreating a Hebrew. So he goes over there and he clobbers the guy and kills him. And then he, he's afraid. He buries him in the sand. And then he runs off to Midian and he's gone, uh, you know, for 40 years down there and all that particular time. And, you know, finally, when he meets God. The first time he met God was up on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. They're the same. And he, he, he's up there and God speaks to him through the burning bush. And God had a job for Moses to do. And he picked Moses because Moses, he didn't pick Moses because Moses was a great leader. He picked Moses because Moses was a weak leader. Because God won't take a strong leader starting out and make him a stronger leader, but he will take weak people who have a desire to do what God says and make you strong. And that's what he did with Moses. He's standing there before that burning bush. That bush represented the nation of Israel. It was a bush that burned, but it was not consumed. And Israel has been burned down through history, but it was not been consumed. And he's standing there and God speaks to him. And he says, Moses, he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I got some things that I want you to do. I want you to be the leader of my people and bring them out of the bondage of Egypt. Moses didn't want to do it. He alibied. He says, Lord, I don't speak well. I'm slow of speech. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. Man, how you want me to go before Pharaoh? That's like asking you to go before Barack Obama today and, 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 and tell him where he's wrong. He says, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not able to do that. I just, I, I can't do that. And he argued with God in that burning bush. In fact, that's where the term today comes, beating around the bush. That's what Moses did. And he, he alibis and he says, I can't do this and I'm not, I, I'm not able to do this and I'm not able. And out of that is the great principle for you and for me. Not one time did God ever ask Moses if he was able. God asked him if he was willing. And God will never ask you or me or anybody else if you and I are able. He will simply ask us, are we willing? Because tonight or today, if you are willing... God is able. And that's what he wants. He 
He took Moses and developed him into a great leader. And Moses was absolutely right when he says, I'm unable. But that's what God wanted. I had a man in our church, and I wouldn't tell you who he is. He's, he's a terrible reader. And he was re- he's very embarrassed about it. And his great fear is that somebody in prayer group or whatever would ask him to say something or read something. And he, he would be terribly embarrassed about that. And he came to me uh, 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 over a year or so ago, and he told me, he said, you know, he says, I have this terrible problem. And he says, I, he says, I, just, he says, I, 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 I just can't read. I don't read well at all. I, I can't make, he says, I've just never been able to do that. And I looked at that, and I thought to myself, now, if anybody has a legitimate excuse after meeting with him, this guy did. But you know what he did? He came to me a couple of weeks ago, about a year and a half ago, he determined in his heart that he was going to read his Bible through one time in a year. And he worked and he labored and he came to me a couple of weeks ago and he said, you ain't going to believe it, but I just finished my Bible reading it through in one year. It was an incredible effect of, uh, aspect of determination. And when I heard him say that and he told me that, he was so proud of himself. I was proud of him. But the downside of that is simply this. I know some of God's people right now who could read 400 words a minute. And you've never read that Bible through one time. You know what the difference between him and you is? Desire. Willing. Diligence. And I've asked myself for 40 years. It's always been a puzzle to me why some of God's people make it and some don't. That thing about people has bugged me, I ain't kidding you, for over 40 years. Why two men or two women will get saved, they'll have the same Holy Spirit of God, they both become new creatures in Christ Jesus, in both of their lives old things pass away, all things become new, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And yet one will grow to a sacrificial Christianity and their life, and the other will just keep his convenient Christian life. Now, I'm not talking about the people who have real strongholds in their life. I'm not talking about who's somebody who's addicted to drugs and can't get the monkey off their back or people who are, are alcoholics who can't get at, past it and they've got themselves so far down. I understand why they're the way they are. They've developed a stronghold in their life, and I'll tell you, it's a struggle for them. It's a hard thing for them to break. I'm not talking about them. I know why they'll probably never break out. Or I'm not talking about, in Christianity, wicked people. And if you've been in Christianity any length of time, you know that there are some saved, born again, going to go to heaven with you, are the most wicked people you ever met in your life. God bless them. I'm not talking about that element. I'm talking about good men and women that I've met in my life. Some of them I've won to Christ. Some of them I sat down and put their marriages back together, put their lives back together. They never got into those dark times like someone who gets that real spiritual stronghold in their life. And when I see them, I see great potential for God in them. But they just do absolutely nothing for him after all that he's done for them. Unless it's convenient. 
And I don't put them out too much. And I want to tell you, I've looked at that, why one person will make it, one person won't. Hey, I know, both of them have trouble with the flesh. All of us have trouble with the flesh. I have trouble with my flesh. And all of us, all of them, will make bad choices in life and do dumb things. I'm not talking about this idea of a perfect Christian. I'm talking about someone who struggles just like you and I do. Has to face the issues of the flesh just like I do and you do. Who make dumb choices just like I've made dumb choices. And we've all made stupid decisions in life. But what really makes the difference between the two? I mean, the Bible says that when they got saved, they got a new heart. Bible says that when they got saved, now they have the mind of Christ. Psalm chapter 40 says, I waited patiently for the Lord and cried unto him and he heard my cry. He pulled me up out of a miry pit, out of a miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my going. Yet put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. He pulls you out of the miry clay, everybody at the same time. He sets your feet upon the same rock. He put the same song in your heart. Why does one make it and the other doesn't? Baffled me for years. What happens? That's the $64,000 question. That's another thing. Why is it (laughs) $64,000? Why not round it off to $65,000? That's another thing I'm working on. (laughs) But the answer to why some make it and some don't, in this very verse, found in two words, just two little words, the word diligently and the word procureth. Over the years, one of the things I've learned about the Bible is that there's some things that I simply can't do with the Bible. There's some things that I can't teach you. There are some limitations to my abilities or really anybody's abilities when it comes to laying out the Word of God. There are some things that no matter how much Bible I lay out or give you, how much time I spend one-on-one with you, how much I try to help you or do help you, some things I just can't teach you. They have to come from your own relationship with God. Last week, we talked about building the character qualities of God in your life. And that's what I'm talking about. As you grow, you become Christ-like. You get those character qualities in your life. And there's some things that I just can't teach you. Like, I watch across here and I'll see some of the acts of kindness that I see some of you people do for other Christians. Nobody ever sees it. The act of kindness I see some of you do. No TV cameras. Nobody's making a big deal about it. Nobody even ever knows about it, except the person you did something for. And maybe even they don't understand it all. But I've watched that. I've watched some of you go that extra mile for somebody when others won't go that extra mile. And I'll tell you what I really see. Many times I see in so many of you that uncanny ability to look at an opportunity and see it for what it is and seize upon that moment and understand that that one little act of kindness of what you're doing can do more for that person than a hundred Bible verses because it's Christianity in action. I can't teach you that. There's no way I can teach that. There's no book outside the Bible that contains that. It's that aspect that 
some of you, many of you have because you, as the verse says, you have diligently on a seeking course for good. Diligently. To do something with what God has given you to somebody else. You know, I'm always enjoy reading stories about people who are millionaire, multi-millionaires, you know, billions of dollars, who are always giving back to their community. I think one in particular is, is you, you, you Kaufman with the Kaufman Foundation. And, you know, he made a lot of money in his life, and I don't know how rich he was, but he was substantially rich. But he never forgot where he made his money from. He never forgot the city and the town and the people who made him what he was. And long after he's been dead now, he left a legacy of his millions in dowries, in foundations, in things to help underprivileged kids, to help this, to help that, to make this, this city greater than it already is. When I look at things like that, I always think to myself, that's an amazing thing. And yet I want to say something to you this morning. If you're saved this morning, you have more spiritual value than you and Kaufman ever had in physical dollars. And what you need to do, and take a good lesson from him, is you need to take some of that millions of gold bullion that God has given you through the unsearchable riches, and you need to leave it behind for somebody else that needs some stuff. You're a millionaire. You got everything. Your father, you're the aristocracy of heaven. Your father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Sometimes you have to give out that thousand hills with cattle, one hamburger at a time. Just giving people what God has given you. You know, I, 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 I had a lot of nostalgia putting this together for my own life because it brought back so many memories for me. I remember in my own life when I was very, very young in this, just started, just gotten right with God. I wanted to know the Bible more than anything on this planet. <laughs> I tried everything I thought was human sense to, to learn the Bible. I, 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 everything that I would hear somebody say. I heard somebody say one time that if you went to sleep and you played a tape and you fell asleep while that tape was playing, that you would memorize everything on that tape. So I'm thinking, man. So I got me in my... Cassette player back then, and I put it, and I'd go to sleep at night, and I'd put the Alexander Scobie reading the Bible. I did that for six months. I never learned anything about the Bible. <laughs> I got a two hundred dollar battery bill. I was like the guy that took a steak and lobster diet, and he said, "How did you do?" He says, "I lost one hundred and twenty dollars the first week." That's where I was at. It just it didn't do anything for me. I read a biography of Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison was an incredible guy. He invented all kinds of stuff. We don't know him for the light bulb. Hey, I want to tell you, he invented all kinds of stuff. And I got reading in there, and I thought to myself, because it talked about that he, how many hours he worked on stuff. And I'm thinking, if I could take the same deal that he has and take that same amount of hours and put on the Bible, man, that would be a great deal. So he got talking about deep sleep and light sleep. How that if you fall into deep sleep, then you can wake up and do more because you don't really need the light sleep. 
Oh, I tried that. It wasn't till months later I found out that sucker was taking a three-hour nap in the afternoon. I was wore out. Couldn't keep my eyes open. Somebody said, speed reading course. So I took a speed reading course. There was a time in my life when I could read 600 words a minute. Didn't do anything for me. I hear all these Christians talking about reading the Bible through once every 30 days. They really learn the Bible. You know, that's 55 chapters a day. I did that for two years, thinking that would teach me the Bible. It didn't do anything for me. But I remember looking back at a period of time after all of that, and God used all of those failures that I had tried because I had the right attitude. I was diligent. I was just young and stupid and looking at the wrong places. So God said, you know what? I'm going to teach you a great lesson, Bob. And I learned from that that it's not how many times I go through the Bible, but how many times the Bible goes through me. That was the key. And I learned some things from that. I looked and sought diligently for the path to that book. I wanted it more than anything in life. Looking back at my life, you know, it's, it's funny. It's kind of humorous to me. All my life, people have hated me. I, I can't think of time in my life since I got into ministry that multiple people just didn't hate my guts and hate everything about me. And simply because I wanted to learn a book and love it and believe it and preach it. And as I said last week, you want God's word in your life and for your family, there'll be a price tag that comes with that. And I think that's another factor. Many times we want the Bible, but we don't want to pay the price to learn the Bible because not everybody on this planet is going to be happy with you learning the word of God. And very frankly, most people just aren't willing to pay the price tag for it. But you know, I ain't kidding you. You know... Never one time in my life did I ever think the price was too great to pay. Not one day in my life did I think that it wasn't worth whatever I had to go through. I don't know. I guess I just wanted that book so badly that I never really thought about it much. And I'll tell you something else. The deeper I got into the book and the more I saw what it was, the less I cared about what anybody thought. Or what they didn't like about the truth that it revealed. And most of the time I learned that it was the truth that the book was revealing about themselves. And I found out that the focus, when you focus on that book and you diligently shirk that book, it will absorb all the petty things that sidetrack God's people so easily. God's people get their whole life all out of whack of who gets to do what. Judgmental over other Christians because they don't match up to your standards. And it's in every church. They get upset about what people say about them or what they think about them. And, you know, it was during this process that I, too, uh, that's when I developed many of the life principles that helped me uh, through that all. And they're really the ones that I just pass on to you. I don't get them out of a book someplace. There were things that God actually taught me as I grew up searching my diligent search for the Word of God. Principles like you can't want somebody to do right more than they do. You know where I learned that? I learned that with Paul and the Jews. Paul got his ministry cut short in Acts chapter 21 because he disobeyed God and he went down to Jerusalem and God told him three times not to go. You know why he went? 
He went because he wanted those Jews saved and right with God more than they did. I've told you not to take things that people say about you or do to you, take them personal. You know where I learned that? The life of Christ. All the things that he, they said about him, all the things that they did to him, and yet he still went to the cross and died for you and for me. And don't count yourself as some spiritual Pharisee. If you were alive back then, you'd have been right in that crowd along with me, throwing rocks at him and saying everything that they were saying. You don't fool me. It's where I learned the Bob Ford syndrome. I told you about this a couple of weeks ago. I got this little goofy thing that I do. I've read history so much and study. I see parallels between history and people and circumstances. So for my point of reference to, uh, you know, my Alzheimer sets in, my point of reference is to always remember something by marking it with something in history that, that, that jogged my memory to it. And I told you a couple of weeks ago, ask her who Bob Ford was. Nobody, I think one, two people knew who it was. Bob Ford's the guy that shot Jesse James in the back. He was a coward. And so I, I told you that in, when you get into the Bible and you get into dealing with the Word of God and people hate you for it and you have all kinds of issues because they don't like the book, cowards will always shoot you in the back. They'll never take you on face to face. Bob Ford knew. He said after he shot him, I would have never taken Jesse James on face to face because he'd have won in a fair fight. So he shot him in the back. And they're cowards. And the last thing that person wants to do is tangle with you face to face when it comes to that Bible, you see. Pray behind the keyboard. <laughs> now, I see some of you being developed the same way. The Word of God is everything to you. And you're willing to pay whatever price you have to pay to not only get it, but to keep it. And I want to tell you, this diligence and procuring as we see it here in a few moments, I want you to understand before we get to that, it's going to cost you something. I've seen so many young men and young ladies over the lifespan of my ministry lose their father and their mom because their mom and their dad hated them going to church, hated them serving God, and basically just abandoned them. I've seen some of you lose brothers and sisters. Because as I said a couple of weeks ago, you may be of the same blood kindred-wise, but you're not of the same spirit when it comes to the Word of God. You want to serve God and do something with it? They don't want to. It's going to cause you some problems. I've seen, I've seen them lose a child. When a child grows up, <clears throat> mom and dad want to do what's right. The child wants to go their own way. I've seen them lose their friends. They'll get all plugged into the Bible and, and start to get on fire for God. And then suddenly the friends around you uh, begin to become unstable. They begin to look at you differently. I have a simple rule I follow. Those whom God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And those who God hath put asunder, let no man join back together. Your diligence. It's your desire for God and his word that overrides the pressure to not be everything to God that he wants you to be. When the expectation, I gave you this a couple of weeks ago, Proverbs eleven twenty three. When the expectation of other people is for you to be like them. And you want to be like the Lord. And yet there's others that always been a mystery to me that will just fold up and give up. 
compromise so easily. That's always just been a puzzle to me. Now, in our verse here, I want you to look at a word. I want you to look at the word procureth. Because it's a great word and it's one of the keys here. The procureth means to get something by asking for it. Getting something by doing something. Getting something by request. And to me, this is one of the great keys, words to it all. Bible says in James 4, 2, you have not because you ask not. Philippians 4, 6 says, let your request be made known unto God. I mean, you kidding me? God's people ask God for everything. Some of us legit, some of us not. God, I need a new car. God, we need a new house. God, I need a new job. God, I need a job. God, uh, I just planted, we need a good garden this year. God, pray for our kid. Pray for our family. Lord, we pray for each other. Lord, I pray for so-and-so that he might get saved. We pray for, we ask God for everything. But why? Why do we just not get it that when it comes to learning the Bible, that it's just that simple, sitting down and asking God to teach you his word? See, I've come to the conclusion that learning the Bible Solely alone is not based on study, though the Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.15, study the show self-approved. You've got to study. I've come to the conclusion that you don't learn the Bible solely by reading other man's works, though you need to do that. There's some great, incredible minds from the past and the present that you can glean extra stuff out of. It's good. But the final analysis, you learn and get the Bible down by simply doing two things diligently. And both of them are good. These two things will be the key to anybody who wants the book with such a passion that they diligently seek good. Developing a time that when you and God sit down and you diligently seek him and you ask him for his word. The greatest example of this in the Bible is Matthew chapter 15 verse 21 through 28. Where you have the woman. Her name's not given but she's only one of two women in the Bible who's called a great woman. And remember in that story, she comes to Jesus and her daughter is vexed with the devil. She's got a legitimate problem. And when she comes to him, she gives him the right title. She gives him his messianic. She got it down, man. And he rejects her. She goes to the disciples. She tries to get them to intercede for her. They go to him and she gets flat rejected again. So she goes a third time. And the third time, the Bible says she worshiped him. And she, she puts everything. And she, she's been rejected two times. Hey, I've met some of God's people who don't get their way one time with God and are out the door. One little disappointment with God, and boy, God he is and who he says he is. And, and this woman got rejected not just once, not just twice. She comes back the third time. And she asked him again. And I don't have time to get into the old story, but she knew her Bible. And she did what no scribe or Pharisee or Sadducee could do in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. She entangled him in his talk. And she just pulled out an Old Testament verse and said, Look, if you're who you say you are, you've rejected me twice, third time's the charm, but this is what you promised to do if you're who you are. And he said, You got it, lady. Great is thy faith. She was diligent. She didn't quit. She didn't give up. 
They simply were asking something of God and they were not, and they were diligent about it and going to get it and they weren't going to stop their diligence until they got what God promised them. Now here's the two incredible concepts and they're real simple. Concept number one is asking of God for his word. Concept number two is once you get it, doing for God with his word. When I was a young guy and I was learning my Bible, so wanting that book, I saw those two concepts in the life of the greatest man in the Bible as far as a relationship with God's word. And his name was David. Bible says in Acts 13.22 that David was a man after God's own heart. 1 Kings 15.5 says that he did what was right all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And I, I, I told you before about the patterns of uh, patterns coming down through life in the Bible of people. I've told you how that Abraham was the friend of God. You want to learn how to be God's friend? Study the life of Abraham. You want to learn how to love God's word and have God's word? Study the life of David. Where Abraham was the friend of God, David had the heart of God, his word. And I saw his desire to do right and to diligently seek the things of God. I looked at the life of David. Put it in a capsule shell. It's a picture of your life and my life. He started out as a shepherd boy. First time you meet about David, where he really picks up a story, he's a shepherd boy. And the last time you read about him, he's a king. What a beautiful picture it is of where your life is going. Right now, we are to be shepherd boys. We're to be, we're to be feeding the flock. We're to be tending the sheep. But someday when Jesus comes back, we're going to be a king. Oh, when I saw that. He was a man so ingrained with God's word that even when he was out of fellowship, <laughs> I want to tell you, there were some times he's out of fellowship. He still finds himself following Bible principles. He was one with that book. No matter where he was when he got out of fellowship, and he was several times, all it took, all it took was the man of God with the word of God, and it always brought him back to God. And it gave us one of the greatest psalms in the Bible, Psalm 51, that shows you the five things that it takes to get right with God through David's life. Hey, no matter how he deceived or manipulated his circumstances, and he did. And you know what? So do we. He's no different than I am or you are. He manipulated the times in his life for what was for his best interest, and I do it, and so do you. But at the end of his life and at the end of the book, his love for it and God, it always led him back to God. I, I look at 2 Samuel 12 where he's messed up with, with Uriah the Hittite killing him and taking Bathsheba for his wife and all of the things that David did and how he tried to cover that up and hide this and hide that and bring all these other circumstances in. And it was a time in his life when he looked around and he said, well, I've done a pretty good job getting that whole thing taken care of. I got it made. But he didn't. And when God sent him that old prophet Nathan, and Nathan set him up and told him a little story about somebody stealing a guy's little lamb, 
And Nathan looked at him and David said, whoever this guy is, we're going to cut off his head. And Nathan pointed that bony finger and he said, thou art the man. He didn't alibi. He didn't make excuses. It smote him to his heart. I, I think back at another time he's out of fellowship. First Samuel 21, somewhere down in there. He's out of fellowship, and he's running from Saul who wants to kill him. And David is desperate. He's a, he's a long way from God. And this is what God does when you ingrain yourself in the Bible. Now, all of us are going to get out of whack at some point or the other. All of us are going to run from the Saul's of life. <laughs> And he goes down there with a bunch of people, and he's down there, and he says, Hey, hey, Saul's after me. Saul's after me. Uh, Anybody got a weapon? I I need a sword. I don't have a sword. Anybody got a sword? And one of the guys says, Well, we got the sword that Goliath had. And he says, Give me that sword. That's a good one. And he got that sword, and he's saying, Now I can fight Saul, my enemies. Now, I'm just going to step outside the scriptures for just a moment and show you what I know from my life and what you ought to know from your life, what God did in his life at that point in time. He's proud of himself. Got a sword. He's out of fellowship with God. But he's got a sword now, and he can protect himself. And he's looking at that sword, and he's saying, Oh, boy, I'm ready to go. And about that time, the Holy Spirit of God came down and said, Nice sword. Whose is it? It's Goliath. Oh, you got it now? Yeah. You're going to fight Saul with it? Uh Uh-huh. Hmm. Funny thing, David. You didn't need a sword when you fought Goliath. You had me. Now you don't have me, so you need a sword. See where that thing goes? He had the word of God in him so much that when he got stepped out of line, the Holy Spirit of God just brought him right back. And all of us, every one of us, will have times of deception in our lives. What's the difference? What's the difference between a guy who makes it and a guy who doesn't? And it's so simple. And the real question today, when you look at this, the real question is simply this. You want to know about your deception and my deception and, and, and what makes the difference between a person who makes it and a person who doesn't? Here's the answer. Where is the end of our deception? When you take all week long and you get out of fellowship and you're here this morning and you're not where you need to be and you know it and you come here and boy, the word of God cuts you like a knife and nails you. Or you come on Thursday night and you got your little world all planned out and you get your little cage rattled. Or throughout the week you go on and you got it made and God will take something and nail you right down to the wall and say to you, thou art the man. Does it immediately bring you back to God? Where's the end of your deception? Or do you just continue to play it off like it's no big deal? Hey, when the word of God is in you, when you have it in your life, and it's ingrained in you, and the Holy Spirit of God says, Thou art the man. You are the man. And ain't nobody else. Does it immediately bring you to your knees? Take you to Psalm 51? Or do you just deceive yourself all the more and blame the message or the messenger? 
The folks who seek diligently good and procure favor and ask for it will be honest and make it right. You know why the reason? You want to know the reason? It's so simple. You want to know the reason why some people will do that? No matter where they go, the moment God nails them when they're out of fellowship, it'll bring them back. Do you really want to know? I'll tell you why. Because the book means more to you than the stupid things that we do. That's why. All this issue today about the King James Bible. I get on television, on the radio, read everybody's books, talk to people about it. Let me tell you something. Don't fool this old man. It ain't a theological issue. It ain't a theological issue. You'll never really love that book if you don't really believe it's from God to you. It's not a theological issue. It's a personal issue. You'll never seek it diligently. You'll never love it with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and all of your soul. You'll never ask God for it. You'll never bury your life in it if the one coming out next year is going to be more reliable. Don't you kid me. Come on, that's good. Amen. If it's not God's special book, then there'll be no special love for it. I talked to a Catholic guy one time and was telling him about the Word of God. And he said, well, he said, we follow the Pope. And I said, man, there ain't no hope in the Pope. I said, you got to get the Bible. He said, yeah, you know what? I heard what you said. And I'll tell you right now, you love the Bible. I love the, All you got is a paper Pope. I said, amen, brother. But at least mine's perfect and sinless. That's more than I can say for yours. You betcha. Somebody says, you worship the Bible. You bet I do. You, I worship God. You wouldn't even know there was a God without the Bible God sent you. Amen. You give me that gas. <laughs> I'm telling you, there'll never be an end to our deception until you live your life with a meaningful relationship that you have to have with that book and that book keeps bringing you back. He that diligently seeketh good, procureth favor. In my early days, my diligent search, asking God for his word, the first greatest aspect I saw that made David what he was, was him asking God for his word. And I discovered one night late at night, Psalms 119, verse 1 through 176, the longest chapter in the Bible. But it's a chapter that every verse in it has something about God's word for me. All the different aspects of God teaching me his word. He says in Psalm 119, verse 9 and 11, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandment. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. He said in Psalm 119, 33 through 37, Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for then do I delight. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. Now, did you get the outline? There's some things, verse 33, uh, 33, that God wants to teach you. Verse 34, there's some things that God wants to give you. Oh, we're happy with those two. Oh, Lord, teach me. Oh, Lord.
me. Yeah, but look at verse 35. There's some things God got to make you do. And those are the things that we fight with. There's the battle. Oh, I'll take the teachings. Oh, I'll take the giving. But oh, I don't want the making me. Then, after he teaches you, gives you, and he makes you do some things that you don't want to do, but you're willing and you're diligent, then, 36, he'll incline my heart and he'll turn away mine eyes and he'll quicken me in my way. I saw this, I saw this was David's key. His own prayer for God to give him what he so diligently sought, the word of God. I saw that. I wanted that. I had finally found the process. So I put together my own prayer out of Psalm 119. With 176 verses, the, the, the combos are endless. I made up a prayer. I was real spiritual back then. Seven was God's perfect number, so I made a 14 partitions, two times seven. Each one, I would ask God to give me his word, and if he did, I'd ask him, I'd procure him, and I'd tell him back, if you give me your word, this is what I'll do with it. And I started right there in Psalm 119. I'm not going to give you the whole deal. You get your own. I started 119 verses 9 11. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? And I went down through that. My next one was in Psalm 119 verse 27. Make me to understand the way that I precept. So shall I talk of thy wondrous work. I told him, Lord, you make me to understand it, and I'll tell everybody about your wondrous works. 119 verse 140. Thy, thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget thy precepts. Psalm 119, 161. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. I rejoice that thy word is one that findeth great spoil. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgment. Grace, peace, have they which love thy law. Nothing shall offend them. Now, I'm going to stop here for a minute and tell you something. That's why you can't offend me. I don't get offended by anything. I don't care. I don't care what anybody says, what anybody does, what anybody thinks. I don't get offended. Somebody get up and say the stupidest thing on the planet about something or get up and make a big fool out of themselves and, and I don't care. I don't get offended. You know why? Great peace have they that love thy law and nothing shall offend them. I preached places before when some old bitty woman come up afterward and didn't like my sermon. And she said, Brother Bob, I just want to talk to you a minute. She says, I was offended by something you said. And I says, ma'am, I'll be glad to hear it, but let me give you the verse. Great peace have they to love thy law, nothing shall offend them. Now, what's your problem? <laughs> One nineteen ninety seven. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Through my, thy commandments that made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancient because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgment for thou hast taught me. How sweet are the words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Though thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Now you pray that to God. I'm talking about it. You know what you do? 
You go in a room someplace, you sit in a chair here, and you hit, put an empty chair over there, and you pretend he's in it, and you read that prayer back to him. You read that to him. You say, Lord, if you give me your word, I'll do this. Just follow the verses. Put your own prayer together. God, you give me this, and I'll claim this. God, you teach me of your word, I'll, I'll proclaim your wondrous word. Lord, and tell him. Read it to him. Tell him. If you give me this, that's how you ask for his word. Now, the second thing I saw with the life of David, man after God's own heart, is once he had the book, he did something with it. You ever see what that was? He went out after the enemies of God. He went to war against those who hated God and his word. Oh, boy, just lost half of you right here. You see, David's life is an inspirational application. It's a picture of the warfare of the believer. He doesn't get any rest. That's why he can't build the temple. He has to fight. The temple doesn't get built till Solomon comes, which is the picture of the millennium. David is a type of you and me right now that once God gives you the word, you do business with the enemies of God. Did you ever see, you ever see what got David into trouble? Look for a minute at 2 Samuel chapter 11. Look at the first verse. Here's what got him messed up. He was doing great till this. And I've seen some of you do great till this. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when king go forth to battle. That David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbath. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass at evening tide that David arose from his bed and walked up on the roof of the king's house. From the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. You know what this is called when you preach on it? David's fatal furlough. He stayed home while the battle was raging. He took himself out of the front line and sent somebody else to do his fighting. Getting out of the battle... Or in some cases, never getting into the battle. This will be the single thing that will knock you out before you get started. Did you ever notice when the Christians start to fall away from God, the issues they start to have? They start to get upset about something at church or somebody or me or you. First thing they do is they, 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 they quit whatever ministry they're in. Quit coming to Sunday morning. Quit coming to Bible study. Too tired now on Sunday. You know, excuses for Thursday. You know, stop whatever you're doing. And uh, now, when it gets to that point in their life, they're on their way to a fatal furlough. Because the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8, in this war there is no discharge in your A-W-O-L. Now again, there's a great example of this in the Old Testament, back in Numbers chapter 32. Israel has just wandered for 40 years. And in that time, God has made them a formidable nation. Got them ready for the real work of occupying the promised land. Now they're ready to cross over Jordan, chapter 32, and take the land that God promised them and the blessings that come with it. Now, I don't have to tell you that that land was key to everything that they would ever have with God. That promised land was where Jerusalem was, is where the temple was going to build. That's the covenant that God gave them of Abraham, and that is everything to them. And what it is, it's a picture of God preparing you and me to do the real work of God, 
right now giving you the essential tools and the things that you need in life. But the real reason God saved you is because he's got a work that he wants you to do. But you've got to cross over Jordan to get to it. Now, number chapter 32, there are some people who don't want to cross over now. The tribes of Gad and Reuben come over to Moses. And they want to stay on this side of Jordan. Verses 1 through 4, they come to Moses and say, hey, the land here is really good. And we got cattle here. And man, we got a lot of cattle. Let this be our inheritance on this side of Jordan. You see, the promised land is the ultimate place for God's people. It's called the promised land because God gave it to them. But once they got in it, they had to get into a warfare and they had to claim the promises of God to keep the land. The promises of God were not on this side of Jordan. The promises of God were for the crossing over on the other side of Jordan. And now Israel has come as far as they can come. They're going to go no farther, no more blessings from God until they cross over and really become what God wants them to be and the nation God wants them to be. But they know that on the other side is the battle, the warfare to keep them and keep the land that God has given them. It's a picture of Ephesians chapter 6 of the warfare of the believer. They wanted a convenient Christianity. They wanted to stay on this side. They didn't want to go over where the warfare and the sacrifices had to be made. These were the nations that have sworn to keep Israel out of God's land for them. And like so many of God's people today, they want the blessings of God, but not the warfare of God. If we could go back in the time and look through there and we'll watch that busy street out there they're going up and down their chairs, I guarantee you Gad and Reuben had bumper stickers on their chairs that says, more cattle, less battle. <laughs> the lackadaisical attitude of staying on this side where it was comfortable like so many of God's people. They weren't standing on the promises. They wanted to sit on the premises. There were no more pillars of the church. They were now turned into the pillows of the church. Sound asleep while the world dies and goes to hell. They had lost sight of the cause of Christ. They had lost sight of the cost of serving Christ. They lost sight of the consequences of not fulfilling what God called them to do. Again, just like so many of God's people, they now have gotten as close to the real deal of God as they want and they're not going any farther they're going to stay safe they're going to play it safe they're not going to make waves they're going to have a nice comfortable Christian life they're just going to enjoy what you have and never take any farther that will upset your little world he that diligently seeketh good Procureth favor. But he that seeketh mischief, it shall come unto him. In life, you'll simply, in this life, get what you go after. Now, I'm done. And what a great principle that is. But let me close by saying this. Going to camp as a counselor and a worker. Done it three years now. 
is one of the most rewarding things that you'll ever do. It will change your life. I've never seen, last year particularly, but even a year before that, I've never seen anything change anybody's life more than going that. Because it makes you, it makes you get outside your comfort zone. Years ago, I was raised on camps. Preached my first messages in camps. Been my share of counselors and camp leaders and all the things that go along with it. And the thing that I hated was when I was tired and beat. And you want to go to sleep and it's been a big day today and tomorrow's another big day and you're already in your own bed and you're bone tired that there's kids who want to keep you up all night till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Gals and guys. But the girls are much worse than the guys. And they will irritate the fire out of you. And you know, there will always be one guy or one girl who will be the ringleader. Who keeps it going. And you don't hate them. And, and really, you love them. I mean, you're not really, because you're there. You're not really mad at them. But for just a moment of time, at two or three, you want to kill them. <laughs> now, I solved the problem when I was at camp because I'm smarter than the problem. And I had a t shirt made up that simply said in the front and the back if you're so tired today that you can't hear the sermons and connect with God, it was because I kept you up last night. And the person who did it the most wore that shirt all day long. And then that night, the person who did it wore that shirt the next day. By the end of the week, not only were they all embarrassed, but the shirt was so grody from everything that, that it was like wearing put on a dead man's clothes. But it worked. When you want to sleep and they won't let you, it's irritating. Now, allow me to make the connection. I know I irritate some of you. And your Christianity, you want to just fold your hands and lay back and fall asleep. But I won't let you. See, I'm the clown in your camp, Serenity, that's nestled down in Sleepy Hollow, who will keep you from falling asleep while the world goes to hell and we do nothing. You get your mind all made up and convince yourself you're okay staying on this side of Jordan. And then you come on Sunday morning or Thursday night and bang, you get a Sunday morning, Thursday night wake-up call. And the harder you try to fall asleep, the louder I get. And the louder I get, the more obnoxious I become. And it irritates the fire out of you. Now, you see, let me get theological here. If I was preaching to a bunch of unsaved people, I would say it irritates the hell out of you. But somebody already did that. Somebody's preaching irritated the fact to the fact that it got the hell out of you and you got saved. So now I'm preaching the fire out of you. That fire is the fire at the judgment seat of Christ that's going to burn up your works, wood, hay, and stubble if you don't get your head out of wherever it's at. Amen. 
You know, I boil life down to about six or seven single concepts that are absolutely true. I mean, you could take everything in life and put them into these six little corners. I've done that over the years, and finally, after 65 years old, I look back and I say, you want what life in a nutshell? Here it is. One, two, three, four, five, six, maybe seven. And one of them is Proverbs 11.27. It's simply this. You only get out of God what you're willing to put into God. And when you won't go any farther and you want to camp on this side of Jordan, and you won't do what God wants you to do, and you develop the mindset that you want more cattle, less battle, then whatever your pursuit in life is, good or wickedness, it will come to you on that basis, either good or mischief. Because, my dear friend, the blessings of God are on the other side of Jordan, not on this side. Everything I do with every one of you, Friday night or Saturday night when the high school kids was here, <clears throat> those little guys were up there doing their preaching and doing their deal to their own people. <clears throat> I have one goal by getting them at that age doing that. Your kids, younger than that, taking their little prayer groups on Sunday morning like the adults do. I have one, one goal in doing that. I helped start, work, we'll start working with some of the single people and giving them tremendous responsibility to do this, do that. I do it with couples when you work with people or people that head up whole ministries for me and you do that. I do it for one reason, one reason only, because I can't always be there. I don't want to always have to be there when, in telling you what to do. You, every one of you, from you young kids to you middle-aged singles to you moms and dads to you old dear folks out there who just signed up for Medicare like I did, for everybody out there, you need to understand that at some point in your life, you need to learn how to cross that river under fire by yourself and get to the other side. Don't deceive yourself that the blessings are on this side. The blessings are after you cross over. And you'll come to a point in your life where you'll grow to a point, but then you'll get stagnant because you're not willing. You'll get the bumper sticker, more cattle, less battle, and you won't cross over where the action is. And that's where the blessings are. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you for the word of God that you've given us. And for these good people who, uh, oh, Lord, they just love you. I know they do. They're the best people in the world. And, Lord, we all get screwed up and messed up and get out of whack, every one of us. But, Lord, let us learn from the lessons today of procuring, asking you for your word, letting that word ingrain us and grill us so much to the point where even when we get out of whack, it just all it takes. All it takes is one sermon. All it takes is one devotion. All it takes is one of the Holy Spirit of God squeezing our hearts, bringing tears to our eyes, and bringing us back like he did David. Help us, Father, to be diligent and willing and go after your word because in it, Father, is all the blessings of God. And help us, help me get these people over Jordan. Help me get the ones that are already there to come back and help the ones that aren't there yet get over Help everybody cross that river under fire. Learn how to do it. Learn how to get across. Learn how to get their families across. Learn how to do everything that needs to be done. Father, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen.